This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to a special edition of Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. We're in Paris this week in the splendid environs of the Shangri-La Hotel on the occasion of the FT's inaugural Banking and Finance Conference here in Paris. This week, we'll be hearing from the governor of the Banque de France about his view of the future of Europe post-Brexit. We'll also be catching up with a couple of the key delegates here. That's Claire Woodman, the head of EMEA for Morgan Stanley, and Luigi Rizzo, the head of corporate investment banking at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, as well as my colleagues Caroline Binham, the financial regulation correspondent, and Martin Arnold, our deputy company's editor, who will soon be bureau chief in Frankfurt, to find out exactly what the temperature has been at this Paris banking and finance conference and the extent to which Paris as a financial centre is set to thrive. Finally, we'll go over to the US, where Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, has been catching up with the latest trends in the cryptocurrency market. First, though, to the governor of the Banque de France, François Villeroy de Gallo. He gave our keynote address this morning, and afterwards I had five or ten minutes with him on stage in a Q&A in which we talked about a couple of the key themes that he saw emerging in Europe. You underlined in various ways how important you think further European integration is. I wondered, firstly... How do you respond to the results of the European elections recently? Did you see those results as a popular endorsement of that mission? And if so, how? How do you interpret it that way? And then to follow up specifically on your point about cross-border financial services consolidation, particularly in the banking sector, could you talk a little bit more about what you would like to see? What is the dream scenario? Would it be a French bank rescuing Deutsche Bank? A nice PR exercise. Okay. About your first question, I am only a central banker. So I'm not supposed to make any political comments, and I'm not especially qualified to make political comments. Can I only stress one very important reality, which is very often underestimated? The popular support for the euro is at very high level for the 340 million citizens in the euro area. I'm not sure that you are aware about the figure. 75% of the citizens want to keep the euro as a currency, the highest level ever, 81% even in Germany. And in Italy, this level of support is slightly lower, but it increases, which is interesting. This plays a very important role. 
So I don't have to comment the results of the polls 10 days ago, but it could be seen as some kind of confirmation. To be fair, there was not a spectacular public debate about the strengthening of the Eurozone, consolidating banking union. This is where probably you expected me and to say you consider this, it was a clear mandate to consolidate and take the technical measures on, let's say, capital market union. The fair answer is no, but the opinion polls and the real elections confirm a strong popular support for the European currency and probably, yes, the European single market. And as we are all aware, the Brexit had this apparently paradoxical effect to increase the support for the European Union in all the other 27 countries. Coming to your second question about cross-border consolidation. Yes, it is desirable. And unfortunately, if we look at the level of cross-border consolidations in Europe, it's lower today than what it used to be before the banking union. This is a paradox. There are several reasons for that, including probably a general caution, but we should look at all the legal obstacles which still make a cross-border merger more difficult than a domestic one. So, I don't think to any special project, this is not up to us, it's up to the banking industry to decide what could be the possible mergers. And we must also reassure the so-called host countries. I mentioned the practice of ring fencing. It has its roots, we all know it, in the past financial crisis after 29. But since then, we have elaborated a banking union with a unified and efficient banking supervision. We have created a common resolution mechanism, the so-called second pillar. We still have to complete the second pillar, but the situation is different from when it used to be 10 years ago. We probably still have to reassure, and I mentioned it with some kind of financial guarantees to best study, still to reassure about what happens within a financial, let's say, a banking group within the euro area in case of trouble for such or such subsidiary. But these difficulties can be solved. We cannot stay with a situation where we have a banking union almost completed, but we don't have a real single market for banks. And I am not the only one to say it. Can I draw your attention about the fact that Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, very famous in France and in Europe now, in her famous paper in March, advocated such a single market for banks. So this is probably one clear priority for the next future. One of the biggest challenges you mentioned in your speech was cyber risk. I wanted also to bring into this equation of kind of future risks the green topic. You've spoken a lot about green finance in the past and the importance of promoting green finance. And even today. Even today you mentioned it as well. The flip side of promoting a greener economy is that there are financial stability risks, the risks of creating stranded assets, if you like, in the world, which for banks and asset managers as well 
are potentially risks to stability because of the outstanding commitments that those financial institutions might have to old-style dirty industries, I suppose. Anyway, bringing all that together with, maybe if you can answer it, with cyber risk as well, I just wonder what central banks can do in terms of concrete policy measures to address these kind of new-style risks. Is it traditional monetary policy in any way? Is it macroprudential rules that can be used? Or what other tools do you have? There are many questions in your There are. Sneaking one in uh, with nine seconds to go. Okay. <laughs> no pressure. So in nine seconds. Yeah. Uh, probably the common feature is we have to address this risk separately, probably with different tools. The common feature is we have been very active at the international level, dealing with financial risk, financial ratios, etc. And it's very important what we did in Basel III, it has to be implemented. If we look at the risks to come, they are probably more technological, if I may say, and less related to financial ratios and more to internal risk management. More of a qualitative nature, let me express it this way. If I can focus my answer on one part, which is green finance. The transition to a green economy, it's not a choice. It's not a nice to have. It's an absolute necessity. For objective reasons, if there is one clear message from European voters, it's that for them, it's one of the most important issues. And let me stress perhaps that Europe is ahead in this field, but it's a worldwide trend. Have no doubt about that, including in the US. So we have to deal with this green transition. It creates opportunities, obviously. It also creates risk for the financial industry. And this is where we have to play a role. You mentioned stranded assets. We often speak of the so-called transition risk, which is the same story. We now say, and this is a very powerful message of the NGFS, that climate risks are part of the long-term financial stability risk. And if you look at the banks and insurers themselves, we published a report by ACPR on French banks and industry. The figures were noted, but probably the most important message is the internal <coughs> management of this risk. Two or three years ago, it was still part of the CSR policy in many financial institutions. Now, unfortunately, for most of them, it belongs to the core risk management business. And this is the kind of message, and let me be clear, of requirement we will have more and more towards the supervised institution. So, let us take the opportunities, and again, there are many of them. I didn't mention the development of green finance, green bonds, green investment. They could even bring growth. But we should manage the risk, and we can manage the risk. And I could say the same about cybersecurity. The awareness increased dramatically in the last two years. And again, it's not a purely European phenomenon. Europe has some advance here, but I am ready to bet with any of you that it will be a worldwide trend. So now, this part of risk management is really a core requirement for financial institutions. I'm glad you're on top of it. Monsieur Villeroy Gallo, thank you so much for joining us. 
Well, let's now go across to Claire Woodman from Morgan Stanley and Luigi Rizzo from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, for their view of the conference's key conclusions. Claire, what's your take? Well, clearly, I think financial regulation, the impact of digital and disruption and climate change as a source of potential financial risk are obviously all key themes that will permeate the discussion, driving profitability, business model change, also relevant topics. But I think one of the interesting points that we have heard both from private sector and the official sector is this focus in Europe on a polycentric or multi-location strategy not just from financial institutions and private sector firms, but also from the official sector really wanting to support that multi-location strategy. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's a phrase, that polycentric phrase is one that was used by the governor of the Banque de France in his speech today. And it reflects, I think, probably a a pragmatism about what happens post-Brexit to the European financial services sector and how it, I mean, the negative phrase, I suppose, would be fragmentation and dislocation. But I suppose you can take a positive view on this. And I think that one of the interesting comparisons he made was between a potential future European ecosystem and the US, where he cited New York as a banking hub, Chicago as a derivatives hub, and Boston as an asset management hub. Do you buy this future vision for Europe? Well, I think we already see it in the operations that we have across continental Europe. We see a very vibrant securities market and equities market here in Paris, uh, very plugged in, clued up regulators supporting and overseeing those markets. We see the development of a financial system in Frankfurt, which is home of the ECB. So we see that and we see the roots of that. And I think it's workable for sure. Luigi, let me bring you in here. Are you as optimistic about the future ecosystem of European finance? And what does that mean, actually, for clients on the ground? Well, yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, If you think what we've done ourselves, actually, to follow our clients in the post-Brexit world, we've done, actually, something very akin to what we just described. So if you think of our bank, you know, we now have our bank in Dublin. We have a broker-dealer here in Paris that has been up and running since last February. And when we look at the business for our clients going forward, it's really going to be wherever they want to be in Europe and more broadly speaking across the continent. So very much we echo that. I think the debate around trying to find the new financial center in Europe is probably an old fashioned debate because Europe has been a polycentric place just to use that term or a diverse union already for quite some time. And I think if you look at the way financial services have followed their clients uh, over the years in Europe, it's been through um, implementation of local uh, teams in some of those countries. And so all of our organizations are very familiar with that. And I think that's probably the way it will go. Yes, I think it's fair to say that for all the bleak macro geopolitical outlook that we've heard from some of the economist contributors today, there is a kind of optimism in the air around the way that financial services may be able to restructure successfully, regardless of what kind of Brexit we get and how integrated the City of London is into the European picture going forward. That's correct. I mean, if you listen to what we heard earlier, yes, it's true that currently, and it's just fact, American and Chinese banks are by sheer size and global reach the largest organizations by far. 
I think it was quite encouraging from a European perspective to hear what the governor of the Central Bank of France has to say around what he called the financing union and the coming together of the market and regulatory frameworks to encourage, as he said, and I'm quoting him, further banking integration in the European Union to create banks that hopefully can be a better balancing act to the US and to Asia. And Claire, a final thought from you? Well, I do think you're right to pause and be cautious. Obviously, we need Capital Markets Union and Banking Union to be firstly revived and completed. And we heard from Olivier Gerson earlier, who expressed some of the challenges around local and national interests and that they need to be managed in the context of a Europe-wide approach to uh, capital markets growth. Yeah, and Mr. Garçon obviously has multiple hats looking after financial stability within the European Commission, but also a key figure in the Brexit negotiations as well. So maybe he's the man who's going to decide our future. We shall see. Claire and Luigi, thank you so much. Thank you. So let's get the FT view of this morning's events. I'm joined by Martin and Caroline now. Martin, do you sense the optimism in the room overrode negative concerns around the macro picture? I think there was an attempt to look forward after the European elections and to look in a constructive way at what needs to be done to strengthen the Eurozone ahead of potentially turbulent times. And I would pick out three things that that people have talked about, including François Villeroy de Gallau, who talked about the need to complete banking union and also very strongly said we need more consolidation in the Eurozone banking system. He talked about how the internationalisation of the euro, that's something that he believes should be pursued much more forcefully. And he also talked about how capital markets union is still incomplete and has been disappointingly slow in progressing. And that's something that the new commission and the new regime in Brussels will need to pursue more aggressively in order to strengthen the Eurozone financial system ahead of what could be tricky times with Brexit and the trade wars and all of these macro uncertainties and not least the rise of populism. Yes, indeed. Brexit has rather dominated at least the subtext of the day's agenda, Caroline. I think that's fair to say, but I think where it's a completely different situation from the UK, where it dominates, you know, literally every aspect of political and economic life at the moment, is that over here in Paris, there's a sense that, okay, Brexit is happening, has happened, in fact, if you talk to some of the financial services companies that have had to contingency plan for a hard Brexit for the last couple of years. So let's just get on with it and let's take a pragmatic view. And I think where you're seeing projects on the European Union basis like Capital Markets Union, what Brexit has done is really act as a catalyst to take those to the next level. Taking CMU as an example, London was the biggest provider of liquidity to the EU. So with CMU, they're working out how that can be mitigated with the loss of that particular source of liquidity. But yeah, we had Stefan Bouchner of Euronext who basically said Brexit has happened already because since the 29th of March, we have all had to have everything in place. So actually, whether we in the UK eventually end up with a deal or a hard Brexit actually is a moot point for some of these big financial services firms. Yeah, and he made the point quite strikingly that the vast majority of clients were now processing the Euronext trades through the Eurozone 
rather than via London. Those clients have basically shifted the domicile of those operations. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as you said, it's already happened. So a lot of the discussion and the hand-wringing, certainly from a sort of financial services point of view, is just a moot point. A final word from you, Martin. Yeah, and interestingly on Brexit, I did ask Stephen Mayor, the head of ESMA, the European Markets Regulator, what he was most concerned about in terms of hard Brexit and market stability. And he said that he felt the financial system was already well prepared, even for the hardest of hard Brexits in terms of its preparations. But what he most worried about were the second order effects. So it wasn't going to be the day one with volatile trading and markets going up and down and seizing up. That's not what he worries about. He worries about longer term, medium term economic impact of Brexit, which could then have second order effects on markets and market participants, and that that could be a structural or stability issue that he's most concerned about. He said it's harder to plan for that, it's harder to test for that scenario. Thanks very much, Martin and Caroline. Finally, let's go over to the US, where we're joined by Laura Noonan, the US banking editor for the FT. Laura, you've been writing a lot about cryptocurrency lately. First, Facebook's global coin initiative, and then this utility settlement coin that the banks have been working on. Let's start with the Facebook coin. What's it about and what does it mean for consumers? So Facebook is already the place lots of us go when we want to catch up on family news, see what friends abroad are doing and read the actual news. Now Facebook also wants to be the place you go if you want to send some money to your friends or even send some money to small businesses or bigger businesses. And what they want to do is launch a global coin which would be used to exchange value between Facebook members. The coin will be pegged against the US dollar which means it wouldn't be as volatile as some other cryptocurrencies but it would have the same speed advantage and the same convenience advantage. And that's essentially what Facebook is looking to do. Now it's not clear they'll have an easy path to do this. Of course Facebook isn't a bank therefore hasn't got the bank regulatory constraints but they will be entering into the payment space and that does carry its own restrictions there is also the possibility of regulation from the cftc which is the us's derivative regulator we spoke to them last week and the head of the cftc said his office was actually already talking to facebook about the coin trying to establish if it would fall under its regulatory remit the issue there would be that most of these cryptocurrencies that we already have trade more in the futures market than in the cash market If this became true for the Facebook coin and there were to be a futures market, that's an area where the CFTC would step in. There may also be other payment regulators who will have a look, so there's certainly a way to go on this before it becomes a real thing. Is there much overlap here between what Facebook is doing and the latest developments at the banks themselves with their own coin initiative? So there's very little overlap between what Facebook is doing and what the banks are doing. I mean, the main overlap is that they both involve coin, they both involve the transfer of value. What the banks are doing in this case is very much focused on the wholesale banking market. And what they're looking at is whether they can make the trading system safer and faster by using coins to settle trades instead of the traditional digital money transfers. They basically spent about three years looking into this issue, having done a lot of research. They think that coin would indeed be a faster and better way to transfer money between banks and also between banks and exchanges and banks and other counterparties. So what they're proposing is multiple coins. So you would have different coins backed in different currencies. If you wanted to do a euro trade, that would be done in the euro settlement coin. That would be backed by euro at the ECB. If you wanted to do a dollar trade, you use a dollar coin that's backed by dollars at the Fed. That also takes away the volatility of the currency issue. And the idea is that by doing these trades, trades would clear instantly. 
migraine calls will be settled instantly or almost instantly. They can currently take a day, possibly longer if it's complicated. This would inherently remove risk from the system. So they're going to go live with it in some limited use cases next year. There are 13 banks. There's also the exchange NASDAQ is involved as well. And from there, the key is then to roll out for other use cases within the trading settlement world and also to try to get other banks involved. And finally, what is the bottom line here? I think it's fair to say both of these are pretty meaningful. In terms of Facebook, it's very much an unproven market activity for them. However, given the size of Facebook, it certainly has the potential to create something which is truly big and truly material. I think the banks will be worried and also payment firms to an extent because it seems quite conceivable that people, especially from the millennial generation, would just really value the convenience of doing these payments activities within the Facebook ecosystem. Facebook will, however, have to confront the issue of trust. I think... There are some people who would reckon the banks are a safer place to mine your data and to mine your wealth than Facebook. I think that's certainly something that could curb what might otherwise be a very influential thing in the marketplace. In terms of the banks going then around the wholesale markets, that also has the potential to have a significant impact. There are only 13 banks, but that does include some of the biggest banks in the world. So I think because you have big banks in there, that allows them to achieve a level of critical mass. I think if this does in fact make trading safer and faster, it's hard to see why other banks wouldn't want to get involved. So I think we should watch this space and we may be surprised as to how impactful this ends up being. Well, thanks, Laura. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank you for listening and to thank, obviously, all our contributors. That's Claire Woodman from Morgan Stanley, Luigi Rizzo from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, the governor of the Banque de France, François Villereau de Gallo, and also Martin, Laura and Caroline. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, when we'll be back in the London studio, au revoir. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.